This is Coda Radio, episode 415, from sometime in the future. Hey there, and welcome into Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly talk show, taking a pragmatic look at the art and the business of software development and the whole world of technology. This episode is brought to you by Cloud Guru. You know, Cloud Guru now has Cloud Playgrounds, Azure, AWS, and Google's Cloud in their sandboxes on ACG's credit card, not yours. Get certified, get hired, get learning at a cloudguru.com. My name is Chris, and joining us right there in his podcasting perch is our host, Mr. Dominic. Hello, Mike. Misa No, no. I sent people there to check the whole place for Jar Jar, and they came back. Where did you hide? How did they how did they not find you? Misa can't be contained. Man, I just got scammed. I thought, you know, I thought it was weird that it was an Uber driver that was taking a hundred bucks to go look for Jar Jar, but you know, I figure there's an app for everything. Dang it. I mean, if that was your master plan, I don't even know what to tell you. <laughs> it's either that or Tinder. I didn't know which were not to go. <laughs> um poor Jar Jar would have a very bad time on Tinder. <laughs> but that's not what we're here to talk about. We're here to talk about the courts. The courts? No, we are not here to talk about the courts. No, we are not. Are you sure? Because I feel like an epic battle over my teacher's apple is brewing. Ding, ding. Here on Legal Coder, we analyze the legal world. Dung, dung. The criminal justice system <laughs> is is represented by two separate yet equally important groups, Lars Ulrich and every kid from the 90s. And who could be more qualified to cover it than a couple of guys? Dung, dung. <laughs> I mean, it is fun to watch. I got to say, a lot of dirt is coming out that just doesn't make Apple look good. And it is pretty awkward that it's all coming out right before WWDC. Yeah, I just don't know what to say to that. We're sorry. I mean, they better put on a nice song and dance about how much developers matter to them at WWDC because... Right now, their entire legal strategy could be summed up as developers owe us everything, and they should be grateful we let them sell apps on our platform. I mean, I think you've just described their business model for the app store. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think uh, we'll see how well that iPhone sells when people stop shipping apps. I mean, let's be real here, right? That's not going to happen. But it's clearly a value of the iPhone. Apple Apple's defense just kind of makes them look like jerks. And I and I I think they're still going to win. <laughs> yeah, they're going to win because I mean the judge seems very um agitated. Can we say by epics uh, I don't even know what to say. Uh more interesting arguments. Well, and I will say, man, I uh because I guess I am a glutton for punishment. I tuned into some of the streams of the court hearings just so I could kind of have my own take on it. And I swear Epic's lawyers are playing games sometimes and introducing delays and adding extra procedures just to add procedures. And it just seems I don't, I don't know, like they have a strategy that it seems to be not just so much the arguments of the case itself, but more like the theatrics of the case. Are you saying that Epic is maybe trying to get a bunch of stuff in the public record so that laws could then be passed regulating Apple that even though Epic is almost certainly going to lose this lawsuit would therefore help their case anyway? Yeah. And exposing the emails like back in 2011, Phil Schiller was raising the question, hey, do you think we can sustain this 30 percent cut or as the App Store grows, are we going to need to readdress this? And that was back in 2011. You know, like that doesn't look good. 
Yeah, it, it almost seems like they knew what they were doing. Yeah, well, you know, they you don't get to be like a $2 trillion company by accident. <laughs> well, I think there's this weird thing where people think that like the Apple executives are not also like ruthless businessmen, but that, I mean... Marketing's a powerful thing, my friend. It's a powerful thing. That brand is one of the most powerful brands in the world. Right, and, and their position is, do you like your business? Great, pay us. And then their response is always, well, if you don't want to sell here and follow our rules and use our payment system and, you know, give us our cut, well, you have a choice to sell elsewhere. But then you go over to the only other side of this duopoly, which is Google. And essentially, Google has just about the same policies as Apple with, you know, a few extra niceties here and there in regards to getting apps into the Play Store or the fact you can actually sideload. But when you look at payment policies, they're really pretty close. So there really is no choice. I'll stop you when I think you're wrong. <laughs> I mean, I, I guess there's a, a kind of I've been thinking maybe it's it's just worth just sitting back and watching this trial go and not even really following it that closely because it seems so clear where it's going to go. But at the same time, I just can't look away because I love seeing behind the Apple curtain where you see these conversations that are just so naked and so blatant. In a way, it, it kind of shines a humanity light on them, but not not doesn't reveal a good part of humanity. And these are the it's like Apple right now. And I think why the M1 comes up so much and why this epic stuff comes up so much is Apple is doing something that is kind of unique. They are like at the peak of technical excellency in a lot of ways, and they are at the peak of exploiting their dominance and their platform, which some people would say is the peak of evil. They are both at the same time. They are crushing it with the M1. The transition of their platforms from Intel to M1 is so damn smooth that we kind of just stopped commenting on it. Linux couldn't even dream of ARM support 24 years into it now that there has been ARM code for the Linux kernel. And it's nowhere near this level of smooth. Windows, with all of Microsoft behind it, tried to do ARM. And it just was a flop. Apple comes along with these ginormous performance and gains, which we are still seeing new reviews come out still that are talking about the M1 performance in remarkable ways. Yep. Turns out the thing's a division machine that's just phenomenal. I mean, it's nuts when this thing's doing math. I don't know if you have seen some of these. It, it's a joke. I mean, it, it's so ahead of basically everything out there in the consumer market. That. I don't think we've wrapped our head around just what kind of impact. We haven't seen a transition like this essentially since the Pentium. I mean, it's a big deal. And, and then you have the you have all of their other technical platforms and their reach combined with all the shit they're doing to screw over developers and small business. We're watching something here we've never seen. Uh, uh, whoa, 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 whoa. They are not screwing over developers. They are recouping their great investment in the App Store. Craig, can I have my check now, please? This is a moment in tech history that is just so unlike anything else we've seen before. So, okay. I mean, I know I totally screwed up your doc and that's my fault, but. Because here we are, right? We are, you and I can talk about the pitfalls all the time, but make no freaking mistake. If Hector Martin came out tomorrow and said Linux is working on the M1, I would buy any M1 machine I could right now. Right, like the, the problem is, and I also own a iMac Pro. The best piece of all-around hardware that I own is this little MacBook Air that I'm doing the show on, period, right? 
and I, I love my Intel Evo Lenovo running Windows and WSL, but the M1 trounces it in basically every category other than like, you know, the weird Mac restrictions on. I, I think also it's notable that Apple with uh, iOS 14.5 rolled out this uh, app tracking notification that prevents cross app and cross site app tracking. And then two weeks later, rolled out a new ad unit for the app store that essentially uses first party data to determine what apps you might like and then serve you ads in the app store. They took Facebook out of the knees because Facebook's whole deal, their whole gig was on on, on, on mobile, to be specific, for on mobile ads, was, was an SDK that you could use. And then everybody loaded this SDK up, everybody played along, and it would watch what things you bought in the game, what triggered you to buy something in the game when you bought it. It tracked all of your in-app purchases. Then they would collect that data and sell it to advertisers who wanted to market similar games to similar types of players. I mean, this is one example. But the only way they could get that information is by monitoring you across multiple apps. For better or for worse, that's how Facebook made money on iOS mobile ads. Apple killed that ability when they when they launched ATT with iOS 14.5. Then two weeks after killing that that functionality for anyone else, they rolled out their own functionality with a super expensive ad that you can buy now in the App Store as a developer. Developers can buy these ads and it uses first party data that Apple has to offer the same functionality to recommend to a potential advertiser apps that they think would be perfect for them to sponsor. It's it's like dirty. It's a dirty move. It improves consumer privacy and gives users more control over what data they share. That's good. But at the same time, they essentially just took out their competitor, created an instant market for themselves, and then two weeks later, introduced a product for that market. I don't know where to fall down on this because end users of iOS are better off. I'd rather Apple do that job than Facebook. But at the same time, it seems like a clear abuse of their platform dominance. And when they just see another business that is lucrative, they'll just pull the same move. All right. That's it. It's just that's what I'm saying when I say that we're watching them at their best and at their most evil at the same time. And that's why it's such a fascinating thing. Well, but they've they've kind of been doing this to Mac apps forever, right? That's where the term Sherlocking comes from. If they see an app that is basically a must have for Mac users, they just make it part of the OS and they put that company out of business. That's true. And now they're, I guess they're Sherlocking, they're Sherlocking services is what you're saying. Well, they, they need that sweet, sweet services revenue for, you know, share reporting, counting purposes. <laughs> Linode.com slash coder. Move on to Linode.com slash coder and get $100. Wait, hold on. Are they still doing that? Somebody verify this. $100? <laughs> Holy crap. This is right here on paper so you know it's real. $100 in credit when you go over to Linode.com slash coder. You support the show and you get $100 to try out all the things on Linode. I mean, that's real money that you can actually get something done over there. Personally, I think Linode's the best way to go. It's where I host everything now. And it matters because that's where I host my business stuff, too. That's that's like, you know, my livelihood. That's how much I trust Linode. And so when I say, you know, you can go over to Linode and you can trust it. I mean, I really trust it. We run all of the backend infrastructure that we have built for JB 3.0 on Linode. And it's a pretty cool little infrastructure we have now. And, you know, really, it's probably all West Payne that has root access to all of the boxes when I think about it. Hmm. Something to keep in mind. But, you know, Linode is really simple to get started. If you just want to try them out to see if it's maybe something that works for you, 
that's really easy. Like they have $5 boxes. All of their rigs are really well priced, generally 30 to 50% cheaper than the big cloud provider out there like AWS or Azure or uh, Google. But, and they're going to be they're going to be faster. The machines just straight up are going to be faster. They have 11 data centers worldwide. They have really fast SSDs on each box. They have a ton of Linux distributions you can choose from. I mean, you can just deploy the app if you want to do it at that layer and they'll take care of all of like the OS stuff. But, you know, that's not really how I do things. I like to actually deploy the OS myself and then I deploy the applications inside containers running on that Linode. And recently I've started deploying CentOS Stream 8 that's available on Linode, but they have like all the distributions. They have like all of them. My general go-to is Ubuntu LTS, but I thought, you know, I'll try a little Stream 8. And Linode's really great about when the new release comes out, they get it up there. So even if you're crazy like Mike and you want to do OpenSUSE or uh, something like that, I mean, I don't know. Linode has it, so somebody must be doing it, right? (laughs) I guess Mike isn't crazy. Lizard people. I can't speak to it. (laughs) If you want to be a lizard person on Linode, you can. And one of the things I really like about them is that they have focused in on this and got it just really right. Like this, they've nailed this business. They've been around since 2003, one of the very first companies in cloud computing, and this is what they've focused on. It's pretty great. So go check them out. They're independently owned, and they're founded on a love for Linux. So go to linode.com slash coder, get that $100 60-day credit towards your new account, and, of course, you support the show. It's super easy. That's linode.com slash coder. All right, Mr. Dominic, let's talk about the launch. Um, This is the keyboard from System76 that's been rumored for a long time, and it is finally here. I know for System76, this has got to be like a milestone moment for the company. It's like an all-hands-on-deck type effort. It's going to be a built-in Denver customizable keyboard. And you know, you and I have both geeked out about keyboards on this show before. And they're trying to come in at the high end with a contender, with a full built-in high-speed USB hub, 100% open source, built top to bottom. The idea, too, that you can customize it with software on your machine and then save that customization back to the firmware, swappable keys, you know, all the stuff you expect from a high-end keyboard. And it comes with a high-end price too, $285. Could end up paying a little more if you wanted to get more of a warranty on it, but otherwise it's 285 US greenbacks. And um, boy, we knew it was coming and now it's here. And I'm curious if you're going to, if you're going to pull the trigger and order one. I am not going to pull the trigger. No, I am not in the future going to pull the trigger. (laughs) Really? Not at all? Ever? Never? You're calling it now. You're never going to buy this? It's not what I said. I I will not in the future (laughs) be buying this. So because you already have? Correct. (laughs) I jumped on that. Yeah. The minute the link went live, I was like, ah, yes. Yeah. I made a mistake and I waited a few hours. I probably Mm. should have too. You weren't put off by the price because I've shared it with a couple of people and they were like, oh, they're $285. Price is a little high. They're really going for, I think, the data transmission speeds as a value add. Yeah. We'll see. Right. For the way I work where I have a mechanical keyboard, import hubs is not a problem for me. But if it feels good, I mean, I use my keyboard every day. Right. Yeah. I think, you know, it's got it checks all the boxes for me. So it's, you know, they have a quieter option. They have like two types of keycaps. That's the one I got. I got the purple, the royal, whatever. That's the one I got, too, then, I think. I can't remember for sure, but either way, they have two switches, a louder one and a slightly quieter one. It's not much quieter, though. Uh, They have a USB-C connectivity. They have LED lighting that looks really nice, and the design looks really super solid. The other kind of like high-end values they're offering is a piece of software that you can use, I would assume, on multiple OSs, but definitely on Linux. 
to graphically configure the layout. It's got like four layers of configuration, so you could really program this thing any way you want. It's got a split space bar, so the space bar is actually two buttons. You could actually pr- program, like, like you know, you could program one of them to be backspace if you wanted. And that's where I'm hoping this could add value because I, I know that mapping keys is not brand new. I've seen keyboards around $85 that can do that. Uh, but the the level of ease and customization with this keyboard seems like it's a notch above what else I've seen. And because it's so approachable, I may actually use it to configure my keys for editing. And that may actually be something I end up doing. That kind of put me over the edge and I decided to go ahead and order it. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to give it a go. I'm going to see how it is. Yeah. So just quick piece of real time uh, errata here. The application does run on Windows and Mac OS as well. I suspected that might be the case. I just didn't know. You look at these kinds of things and it reminds me that there is a product category for every kind of buyer. You know, you could get a mechanical keyboard for 60 bucks. You could get a cheap keyboard for probably $15 from some places. You know, some keyboards come free with a computer. At $285, they're clearly saying we're going for people who know they like a high-end keyboard. You know what I think? Like, I think they're clearly addressing people who who know they are in this market and that their keyboard is like a serious piece of equipment for them. Yeah, I think that's true, right? Like, if you're sitting at home, as many of us are now, and you're doing development all day, having a good keyboard. Now, I do have one gripe with it, which, apologies, Carl. There really needed to be a wireless option and not Bluetooth. It needed to be a nub. And I know people will say, Blue, the nubs are old school. The nubs are so much better than Bluetooth ever was. I mean, I'm sorry, Bluetooth Bluetooth is gone. Yeah. No, I like the nub. I'm, I don't mind a Bluetooth option, but I like the nub myself. I like the nub. I think, I, I you know what? <sighs> Having programmed many, many, many of a peripheral using Bluetooth, I hate Bluetooth. <laughs> I hate it with a passion. It's unreliable and it's garbage. So many things can interfere with a Bluetooth signal. And I know you're going to lay that Bluetooth LTE or LE on me, but both ends have to support that. And that's almost never the case, at least not fully with the crappy Chinese stuff you buy. So I don't mind having a cable to my keyboard. I'm very, I did. Okay. So I have to confess, I did not get the expedited shipping because the way the cost broke down on the shipping was kind of silly. Yeah. So I probably won't have it, I imagine, till like the end of June. I've asked for a review unit, but I don't know how many they have. Why should you get it? I should get it. Because, uh, you know, because I have like four podcasts, dude. <laughs> yeah, but you only have one good one. <laughs> That's true, right? That's true. <laughs> Damn. Wes is like, last time I cover for you, asshole. Well, you didn't say which one. Um, so we just tell each, you know, it's like each kid, you just tell them you're my favorite. Well, no, uh, stoked was the best one. <laughs> you know what? I, I got a note in the other day from somebody who was like, Hey man, I still miss stoked. So everybody misses stoked. I don't know why you of all the shows you could cancel, cancel stoked. What a mistake. <laughs> I know. And for new listeners who don't know what the hell we're talking about, you don't need to. So, you know, I wonder if there is a world where you could have, um, a slightly smaller version of this where the home page up, page down, and end buttons go away. That row's gone. The arrow keys move over. The LED backlighting goes away. And it's cheaper. And maybe then that one could be wireless too. Because um, this at $100 would be an easy no-brainer add-on to like a Thaleo order. At $285, I could get more RAM or more storage for that price and you know just keep my keyboard. Well, yeah. That's a trick, I think. That's going to be... But at the same time, if their idea is to just create a new market for accessories, 
I actually think it's kind of brilliant. They're checking a lot of boxes with this. The, the community that is really nerdy about keyboards likes it to be open source. They like it to be repairable and they like it to be well built. And I think probably a lot of them would also like it to be built here in the US of A. Hoorah. I don't know. If, I don't know about all of them, but probably, you know, a good percentage of them. And so if their if their idea here is just to create a new product category for, for their company that serves that high end market, I can see it doing well. And I bet you they don't have to sell a ton of them. In fact, they probably wouldn't want to sell thousands of them right away just because of the, you know, the manufacturing uptick to get this going. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I think they're going to be production constrained, actually. Yeah, I would not be surprised. You know, this, it takes a while to learn this stuff as a business and have everybody learn the process and get all the get all the institutional knowledge you know, dialed in. It just takes a while. I mean, we've known this is coming for what? How many years? Maybe three, maybe longer. Yeah, we were talking about this a long time ago. I mean, everything blurs together. It's like all pre-pandemic, post-pandemic. But we definitely were talking about this a while before the pandemic. <laughs> That's what I, I remember. <laughs> Time is definitely different in the void. I will give you that. Yeah, but. yeah, yeah. That's basically what it feels like. I'm very happy for them, too. It's kind of neat to see, like, you know, people that uh, you respect and admire. And, and, and it's neat to see them kind of take on this new thing. Like my super small, really baby version of this is JB learning how to do fulfillment out of the studio here has been like, oh, right. We need processes and we need people who are dedicating time to this and we need relationships and partners I'm like, oh, like all these. And then, oh, this is a whole thing for my business to figure out. Like this is a new thing we're doing. That's so that that times a times 100 for what they're doing. Right. I mean, it's a major new undertaking for a small business. I mean, anytime you're touching hardware is, um, how can I put this kindly without sounding like a jackass, a goddamn nightmare. Yeah, it's, you'd have to be almost insane to do it, I would think. I mean, I'm actually insane. And yeah, I, I run away every time. I run away like a little girl. I'd like to see how they build it. I really would. Because I bet you it's more involved than you'd think. But we'll see how the market reacts, I suppose. I bet you it's a huge pain in the ass. Yeah, I agree. Um, I, I am excited to get mine, but I have uh, I have really no expectations. And, you know, like this Keytron I have in front of me right here, the key, the uh, key, I'm sorry, Keychron K3 Ultra Slim that I have. It's a really great keyboard for seventy four dollars and it does some of what the launch does. I don't know if it does. I, I mean, I don't know. Like, it, like That's one of the things I'm going to compare is like, how does it compare to like an eighty dollar Keychron? or my $200 um, RSI keyboard that I have up at my desk. Cause that's, you know, that's a whole nother thing. Those keyboards can get very expensive. I don't have a good answer to that, but again, in a couple of weeks we will, we'll know. Right. And my last thought, my last kind of question to you is how do you picture this long term? Like they have their own hardware, they have a keyboard and they have their own desktop interface, cosmic and pop West that they're working on. Seems like a lot of potential there because your keyboard could have keys that specifically do something in your UI that you're building. And that's obvious. It seems like an obvious direction they're going to go. I mean, I think that's where they're going. Right. And I also think, I mean, I, I have no knowledge of this, but if I were them, I would be thinking, how well do accessories that run on the other, you know, the two kind of more mainstream OSs do for us? Is this maybe a line of business that we need to think about a little more? Right, because they they say right on the page it works for Mac or Windows as well, and and they've made the software work on Mac and Windows as well. Right, that's probably smart to tell you the truth. 
I mean, why not? Why not have some Windows users help finance a few Linux machines getting built? <laughs> That's pretty great, actually. Well, it's not. It's it's not even that. It's why not? Just like, yeah. I mean, I guess it is that, right? Like, why? Why not subsidize some of the other business by selling accessories to Windows users? I mean, I'm not saying, but I'm just saying that would that would work for me. All right, you want to talk about this panic thing? You alluded to it earlier. I would love to talk about this panic thing. Okay, so this is almost a classic story now. Super quick recap for those of you that are not familiar with Panic. Panic is one of the classic Apple ecosystem developers. They make some pretty good, well-known apps like Transmit and Nova and Prompt and Code Editor. Um, If you're familiar with the game Firewatch, uh, they were involved with Firewatch, and um, they've made uh, even hardware. I mean, we've talked about Panic several times on the show because they've also been very public when they fail. And that's what happened recently. They wrote on their Panic blog, The Future of Code Editor, and they announced that they are going to stop selling Code Editor for iOS soon. The app should continue to function, but essentially is not going to receive any future updates. And shock and horror, it turns out, essentially the crap that Mike's been going on about for a long time is what has killed these products. And I'll just recap some of it. Number one is if web developers want to use tools like TypeScript, it requires compilation processes to be kicked off and they can't execute additional processes on iOS. It's a very cumbersome proposition for mobile devices like iPhone and iPad. Also, uh, they find that fewer web developers are looking for tools that don't have that functionality. So sales have just declined in general. But really, they had to fight technical hurdles like that inability to run external processes and policy problems. They say, even if we could come up with a viable way to, say, execute TypeScript extensions or something like that, we would likely run afoul of App Store's policy. iOS and iPad apps must use Apple's JavaScript interpreter, JavaScript Core. Although JavaScript Core is excellent, they write, many developer tools rely on features or behaviors only present in Google's V8 JavaScript interpreter. Similarly, WebKit is the only allowed web rendering engine in iOS. But even if we could find some kind of clever workaround, these these limitations Apple puts in place, they say, we would not know if our approaches would be allowed through the App Store review practice until they were fully built and submitted for review. So we would be facing a huge investment of time with the possibility that it would ultimately get rejected. Man, if that doesn't sum up like eight years of coded radio criticism in like one blog post, and that's not even all of it. That is damning. It's policy. It's we've it's what we've both been saying. It's the technical limitations and the policy limitations and some technical limitations that are a result of policy. It's not good. It's tough because this is everything we've been talking about, I feel like, for ever 13 years now. I mean, literally. And, you know, they noted in here, too, like, hey, you know, if things changed and, you know, in another universe where some of these things were possible, we'd probably come back, maybe like almost like a hey, nudge, nudge, Apple. If you wanted to make adjustments at X at WWDC, you know, we we might. uh... I guess, but I don't understand how Apple could ever come back. This is one of those things that feels like what could Apple do other than just open up the app store. They definitely need to rethink how iPadOS is going to get used by end users and developers. There's that. 
But, you know, you, you said something recently, and I think you were right. You solve so many of these problems if you just let somebody use their own payment processor. St- stay with me for a second. So say they implement Stripe, and instead of paying a 30% cut, they're paying a 5% cut, probably 5% at worst. They, you know, Knowing the size of Panic, they could probably get a better deal than 5% even. So say, but say they're paying around 5% instead of 30%. Well, they just increased profits by 25%. Uh, I mean, all of a sudden they now can pay another developer, right? Like they just get a lot more revenue to get creative here to solve problems and they can put in their own kind of upgrade model. So that way they can actually pay for future investments. And uh, so there's that. And then ultimately, I think I think they they have to consider some kind of third party side loading via Finder or something for iPad. They've got to do it. And I actually don't think it's that crazy. Sometimes Apple goes up there and just does exactly what everybody's been screaming about for years, and they just act like it's a brand new idea. But and then everybody walks away from WWDC going, "Oh, that was great! They gave us everything we wanted. Everything's great now." I mean, it's not unheard of for Apple to take something that's ludicrous like this and just say, "Okay, we're going to do it." Because what's really the downside for them? They're going to lose out definitely on some revenue, no doubt about it. But to be honest with you, the Apple payment system is still pretty freaking competitive. I mean, you and I just admitted the other day that we go grab Apple Pay when we're shopping online and stuff because it's quicker, faster and easier and safer to buy. Absolutely. Absolutely. So they have a competitive product. They have a competitive product. So compete. And, you know, it's not crazy for them to do it. They do all they do all kinds of crazy stuff like switching to Intel and then switching to their own processors and launching a phone. Like, I mean, they'll do stuff that like just doesn't seem like Apple could possibly ever do. And then they do it. And then it's just the new normal. And that'll that'll I think that's got to be what happens here. Or the iPad is dead as a serious pro user platform. It's and, and it's it's killed by its own parents, if that's the case. Well, I mean, we have thousands of hours of me bitching about this, right? I, it's not a secret that for all my love of Linux and particularly System76, my dream is an open iPad where I can just write Objective-C. Yes, Objective-C. Not anything else. Objective-C. <laughs> Did we all get that? Yeah, I got it. I got it. I got it. I want to be slow. I don't want to be fast or quick or rapid or dare we say swift. I want to be objective in my opinions and I want to see the world. I think I've made my point. Uh, just to be clear, though, <laughs> I want a superset of a programming language called C with objects and messaging between those objects. Oh, that's a great idea. Huh. It was a great idea. Hmm. Where could we? Until Chris Latner. Never mind. <laughs> but the problem, just let me, let me, yeah. let me have this one. But the problem <laughs> is, as much as I bitch about the languages, Swift is actually a fine language if you're a jackass. Um, where was I going? Oh, right, right, right. The problem with the iPad has nothing to do with the, the SDK or the hardware or even Xcode. By the way, Xcode, go back and listen to the show in 2012. Xcode used to crash like it was its hobby. Yeah. I mean, it was really bad. Memory, it was horrible. Now Xcode is actually, I don't know, man, Xcode is a pretty good IDE. Like sometimes I look about at my Ruby mine. Hey, JetBrains, you might want to pay attention to one of your products there. And I'm like, hmm, Xcode's more stable than you. That seems bad. Whoa, yikes. Really? Yes, past Mike, really. 
uh, the problem has always been the policy, right? The restrictions put on by Apple that say where you have, if you want to do something interesting and innovative, you have to say, mother, may I? That's that's just not how you get a successful pro ecosystem. Right. But don't you think that the other fundamental issue here is they don't know if it's even worth it or going to work until they've built the entire thing and submitted it to Apple. They have to do all the upfront investment with the possibility they'll say no. Well, that's why you don't do it. A, a, a young man in our chat who was one of our winners of a, or one of, of a, a lemur that I sent him for one of our, you know, my silly contests that I do when I, you know, when it was been the Dean Martin variety hour wanted me to write an iPad text editor. And we had a long telegram conversation about this. And then I realized that I could not, he wanted it for, I think, or I wanted it for Ruby to run RubuCop. And he was looking for, I think it was Python, but you could not run the RubuCop or Py- PyLint processes. Just like Panic figured out that they can't run the TypeScript process, right? It's the same problem Yep. because of the way Apple does this. Uh-huh. It's just, it, listen, there would already be some stupid Alice in Wonderland themed text editor out for iPad right now. Oh man, that'd be great. But I can't do it because it would be crap or it would be something insane where I had to charge you a monthly price because it has to like send all your code up, which you probably don't want to some Linux server that's actually running these tools. Right. And then we're going to get into versioning issues. Like I went all the way down the rabbit hole on this stuff. Meanwhile, this, the iPad's so powerful, you could legitimately run an entire VM. I mean, that thing has so much horsepower on it now, especially the pros with the M1 chip. It's just ludicrous. I said, I'm buying a Thaleo Mira. <laughs> I don't know if that solves it, but you know, I wonder if this is why the free software community just won't let mobile go. I was reviewing uh, Nitrix recently on Linux Unplugged. I'm sorry. For, for those of us who don't hang out on Slashdot, what is that? It's a Linux distro. Of course it is. Yeah. And the developers have built all these really nice apps for it that are all designed around the idea of convergence and mobility. Like even today there is like plasma mobile and Ubuntu touch and these efforts uh, for, with lib handy on the GTK side and the work that purism is doing. There is all of these efforts to mobilize and make touch friendly, the Linux desktop, even today. In fact, there may be more work happening today than ever. And some of the, some of the libraries like lib handy are going to become like, essentially the new go forward GTK library set that is just going to bake in convergence type uh, rescaling and automatic reshuffling of the UI features into the GTK apps. It's like just this unrelenting drive by the free software community to build a platform for devices that don't even exist. I, I, I just can't even fathom it actually, because the work is not, done on the desktop or on laptops or on servers, even close to being done. And yet we have this unrelenting drive for mobile, for hardware and platforms that don't even exist because you're not going to run it on, on iPhones or on Pixels or on Samsungs. Maybe, you know, esoteric and older hardware, yes, but like something modern and fresh with a great camera and super fast processor and super fast refresh screen, blah, 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 blah. Like yeah, that's not going to run these firmwares yet, but still, Mike, Still, they devote hours and years relentlessly driving towards building software for these mobile platforms. And I got to figure it's because of the show we have with Google Play and the Apple App Store and the tyranny of the duopolies 
that have put training wheels on the future computing platform that future generations and current generations are using. That's got to be what it is, but it just seems futile. I mean, resistance is futile. That's true. That could be a title right there. Have we ever done that as a title? It should probably be a title. I'm 900% sure we have. But you know what's not futile? Logging your applications, important uh, metrics, and, uh, you know, health. Datadog.com slash Radio. That's right. Go there to get a 14-day free trial. And if you create one dashboard, you also get a Datadog t-shirt. Datadog lets you analyze code-level performance across your environment and troubleshoot issues faster with Datadog. Save time and communicate. They have this tool called the Continuous Profiler, and it automatically collects profiles from your production servers and from your application stack, and you can analyze all of the data it collects at any point in time, get a snapshot, whatever you'd like, with minimal overhead. Think about the power of getting a unified picture of your entire environment and correlate, like, you know, code stuff, like new changes, to, like, you know, performance stuff, like metrics that are based on your entire application stack. And the cool thing is, Datadog's been around for a while, so they've worked really hard to get integrations with tons of different applications, like over 450 commercial applications they have just direct integrations with now. And then you can get tracing and log management and that continuous profiler, the whole stack, all in one platform with these gorgeous dashboards. You really should go check it out. Go pinpoint the cause of issues faster than ever. So go try Datadog for a 14-day free trial. Go visit datadog.com slash radio. Now, you go over there, use that URL, create one dashboard, get yourself a t-shirt, some free swag. It's datadog.com slash radio. All right, we're cooking up some WSL client-side applications. I did a little did a little dive into some Microsoft documentation, and I'll link to a couple of them in the show notes. I sampled, you know, like, uh, like when you get a beer sampler, I sampled Microsoft's documentation and story for developing applications in Windows, but using WSL to actually execute and build and test the code. And I'm wondering if you've experimented with this because with like VS Code and the remote WSL extension, this just looks like it's a freaking cakewalk. You basically just do everything from Windows and VS Code is communicating via this extension to WSL and doing all the heavy lifting for you in the Linux box. That doesn't seem bad at all. But you have not tried this? Um, well, this is how I do my Python development on the Lenovo. So VS Code just communicates with WSL and the Python stuff and Postgres are being run in WSL. Yeah. Now, did you have to install something in the WSL Linux or is this something that Penguin does for you? Well, Penguin helped me install Python and PIP and I think Post... No, I think I actually installed Postgres using apps. Oh, but the WSL WSL extension is using like SSH, isn't it? Now that I think about what I read, I think it's... Doesn't it connect to your WSL? Yeah, but you don't don't have to configure it. So there's an extension for Visual Studio Code Mm -hmm. for WSL and it detects if you're using WSL. So if you just use the code command... So I I take it back. In Penguin which is the WSL that I use by a white foundry software. If I type in code, it's like, Oh, we see you have the windows version of visual studio code installed. Would you like us to do our little magic and make a link that Linux will basically port that to the, you know, code.exe. And the answer is yes. Right. That's what you want because it's easier to run the native GUI and window, blah, 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 whatever. Sure. I know it's not native. I know it's electron, blah, 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 but it's still 
less resource intensive. I mean, if Microsoft owns it and it's running on Microsoft Windows, is it native? <laughs> well, but once you do that and then code pops open, it's like, hey, we see that you opened us in a directory that's in a Linux, you know, a Linux file system. You would you like to install WSL? And then it yells at you if you don't have WSL version two installed and guides you through the process of upgrading your WSL instance to, to WSL two, which is the more quote native Linux kernel. It doesn't just happen automatically. I mean, I don't get that. Why would Microsoft leave you on WSL one like an animal? Well, there are reasons you may want WSL one. I'll give you a good example. WSL two is incredibly fast in the Linux file system. Once you cross over into windows land, it takes a big performance penalty. Like you mean applications are slower or what do you, what do you mean? Every, every, everything is slower. Ah. So if like, for instance, in my case, all the Python stuff on that Lenovo is in the Linux file system. So it's like CD windows home, or I'm sorry, it's like CD Michael. Right. Cause you're like, you download it using like, you know, Chrome or Firefox on windows and stuff like, no, I no, I don't. No, 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 no. I installed Python via apt. I no, no, really this is pure Linux. So you, okay. yeah, this is, Wow. I don't cross the stream. So it's basically like there's a Linux distro on the machine. Yeah, sure. When you have to cross into Windows land is where you get trouble. But that's why Visual Studio Code has this plugin, because you get the near native WSL2 performance in VS Code. Now, other things fall apart. Like I have not been able to get the PyCharm integration working well at all. It's It, it just doesn't let me do the... Uh, I'm having a hard time getting to let me do the... Uh, you know, the... Py, the People who use Python, the virtual environment for that specific project, because I have multiple projects. I will say, I've been, I'm, I'm going to keep working in WSL for a while, for at least another two weeks. I'm definitely seeing the boundaries of it, or perhaps the pain points may, may be more fair. But I mean, it's a very good option. If you are used to Windows and you just need some more Linuxy open source tools, you at least owe yourself a week or two to try it out. But I would strongly urge you you not try to use any other editor but VS Code. Seems like there'd be a business for somebody else to integrate WSL support into their editor. Yeah, it sounds like a lot of work when VS Code is free, though. Well, that's true. They announced, uh, Microsoft announced on May 10th that they're integrating PyLance into future versions of VS Code. I don't know if you've ever tried PyLance, but that's another Python extension. Oh, That's what I use. I've been using that. Yeah, we, we had a whole show on it. I've been using it for several months. I'm using the preview. Yeah, what did you just mention? I get it confused with the other one you just mentioned. That's why, because I'm an old man. Well, there's the Python plugin, which PyLance requires, which is the old one. But PyLance is basically like it figures out what you're trying to do. It reads your pip dependencies and says, oh, these are the methods we have. It's not perfect. But you like it. Yeah, it's, it, it's basically up to par with PyCharm Pro. Well, now they're going to build in PyLance. So <laughs> I mean, there you go. And of course, people on the Linux side are not very thrilled about it because I think there's some license issues with it. We got a couple of people that wrote in that weren't too thrilled about it. I mean, I mean, the question about WSL is ultimately going to be, if you are a full-time, you know, Nix developer, right? Whether that be Linux, Unix, BSD, whatever, it's probably more work. Even And, and by the way, Penguin is a proprietary tool that you have to buy. If I wasn't using Penguin, there'd be quite a bit more work for me to set this up, right? But I just bought Penguin for 20 bucks. You know, I'm not even sure, like I'm doing a bunch of Windows development right now because I'm on a contract. When that's over, I don't know, a Thaleo, a MacBook, although I'm having some weird M1 troubles. What? M1, 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 M1 troubles? 
32-bit binaries we can talk uh, about oh. another day. Oh, 32-bit yeah, yeah. Intel binaries? <laughs> Listen, a lot of my time is spent with software from the early 90s and 80s. So. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's let's be honest, that's what runs the world. Right. That That's when all the Apple stuff just falls to crap. It's like, what are you talking about? You didn't rewrite this like every two years? Uh, say it again, sister. You're so right. Like that is that is the real world is there's so much legacy crap out there still. Like, and I'm, I'm doing, uh, well, we'll talk about this later, but I'm doing some more flight sim stuff that I might, like the mirror, I was not joking about looking at a mirror because at some point I'm starting to see that the most of, well, I've seen this for a while. I'm, I'm trying WSL as a lark because I'm doing .NET development on a job. Sure. But more and more, the world is going towards open source and Linux. And the graphics processing efficiency on Linux is frankly better than it's ever been. Like really, GPUs used to be wasted on Linux machines. Now, it's actually sometimes better than the Windows counterpart. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Like pound for pound, right? Dollar for dollar. Particularly when, when you're using AMD, which tends to be cheaper. And I'm not talking about laptops here. I'm talking about honking desktops with fans and, you know. And so, so, so much simpler to get working now, especially the AMD stuff. You know, if you if you installed, uh, you know, any modern Linux distro at all, even, you know, some of the older ones now, it's just going to work out of the box Full everything, full 3D support, everything. And if you're me and you buy it from System76 or Dell, basically, they come pre-configured with the drivers anyway, so you don't care. And as far as businesses are, you know, is, they're buying them in quantity and either IT is taking care of it or they're, they're getting an image from the vendor or, yeah. There's a lot of ways there, but yeah, you're right. And, and the situation I think when it comes to GPUs is going to be a specific advantage for Linux as time goes on, because as Apple focuses on uh, the M1 stuff and windows is just a, a ball of code. It's just a wires. It's just wires everywhere. Uh, Linux remains lean mean and the driver is being built by, by AMD developers and is being contributed directly into the Linux kernel. So it's like, that means it works on servers. That means it works. If you, if you built yourself somehow a risk five system somehow with an AMD graphics card, it would be supported, right? It's, it's really kind of remarkable. I have this little tiny Odroid go super. It's the size of a Nintendo switch Lite, and it's got a screen and, you know, controls on it. And the thing's running Ubuntu 1804. So when I needed to get networking support, I just took any networking dongle that I know is compatible with Linux and I just plugged it into this thing and it got it on the network. And then I messaged it into my, my handheld console because it has all those tools and it has apt available so I could just install software when I needed it. And when you look at the power we have available to us now and the flexibility that gives you, that just long term seems like if, if your job and your work scenario isn't something specific to Apple and Apple's environment, or isn't like the corporate world where you're going to run Windows, Linux is going to offer more and more advantages to people. Uh, because it's, it remains lean and mean, the developers actually go through and prune old architectures and, and remove unsupported deprecated code out of the kernel. It's not perfect, but it's, pre it's pretty great. Well, and this is not the sexiest thing to say, but you could also just chill on a LTS for a while and be fine, right? Like You absolutely could. I, I worked with a PHP developer for a while uh, at uh, Dream Dinners, which was one of these dinner prep companies where you go on their website very early on and you would put your meal together and then you would head into their, uh, their, the, like their little franchise location. They have them all across the country. And you would actually prep the meal yourself and then take it home and freeze it. 
Uh, and the whole website, the back end for like the, the stores, the franchises to like supply manage and the front end for customers to log in and place their order. The whole application was written in PHP, of course, running on the whole LAMP stack. It was classic back then. You just did everything on the LAMP stack. And this, and this developer refused straight up refused to use anything but LTS releases. And he would use the LTS release until the last day it was supported. And then that would be the day he would schedule his upgrade to the next LTS. And it was like this big deal. And we didn't schedule him for anything that day because that was upgrade day. <laughs> you know what? You're laughing, but I, I'm starting to really think I need to throw a little more cash at my workstations and we're just going to chill on the LTS and <laughs> You know, we just buy a new machine and those machines, honestly, like my old Thalio is now running as a server. I am going to take a very serious look at this when CentOS Stream 9 ships at the end of the quarter is the is the estimation. Yeah. CentOS Stream 9 is essentially going to be based on Fedora 34, which is a killer release of Fedora, but it's it's CentOS. So it's going to be around for years and it's being built to be the next rel, so it's solid as hell. So you have this solid as hell base, because it's, well, it's rel and it's their moneymaker, and you have essentially a snapshot in time of a really great version of Fedora that's getting some incremental updates over time, but nothing major. It really sits in this really nice sweet spot for a potential workstation, if you like the Fedora you know, Red Hat base. But same with the Ubuntu's and the LTS's. You can, this is where, Mike, I also think I think it's kind of a shame you haven't spent more time not to make this Linux hour. So this is the last bit. This is my last bit. But I think it's a little bit of a shame you haven't had a chance. And I understand you're busy to uh, mess around with elementary OS, especially maybe even their new beta, because it's really slick. It's very clean. It really stays out of your way. And it's based on version six is based on Ubuntu 2004 LTS. And um, so it's that same solid base, nice, modern, clean user land. Um, they have an app store that has a nice few decent apps where you can opt to pay developers if you want. So they're actually like sticking around and working on the apps. Um, I don't know, you know, it could be a Linux that appeals to you. You know, it does have some similarities with the Mac OS interface, too. So some of those skills translate pretty well. Like it already does horizontal workspaces and has the dock at the bottom bar along the top kind of thing. And you might like it. You know, you might. Yeah, I've checked it out some years back, but we're maybe last year, but it's been a while, yeah. And they got that new beta out now, version 6. It's not final yet, but you, know, you could toss it in a VM and give it a look or put it on a machine, and I think you'd be impressed. And it could be a Linux you like because you still get that apt-get base and Debian stuff and Ubuntu stuff and all that compatibility that comes with being on an Ubuntu release, but you get something a little different, too. You might like it. I don't know. Mikey, I think he likes it. Kind of been toying with the idea if, you know, prices on GPUs start falling at the end of the year or early next year. I, I could really use a new workstation. My workstation upstairs is getting pretty old. It's getting pretty slow. You know, like my workstations, and this is totally fine. It's how I wanted it to go. But my workstation's gotten to the point now where like the laptops I get in for review are like kicking its ass. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, okay, all right, all right. You know, but I, I got like years out. I think it's like a, we built it in like 2016 or 2017, you know, and we probably built it for like $900 or $1,000. I mean, we got a, it's a great value, but at some point I need to replace it. And I'm not going to, I'm not going to go with a, a low end box. I'm going to get one nice machine. And I'm going to try to get years out of it. So I may be in the same boat eventually, but just in a little bit. Well, and, and you make mention a great point about the GPU prices. They're kind of like stupid right now. 
Yeah. I mean, there is this crazy idea with a PC workstation tower. You could just buy it with a cheap GPU now and then get this. You can just open up the side of the case and put a new GPU in. <laughs> yeah, but you're eventually going to hit like the power. You know, I don't know. I don't like opening them. I feel like at some point. Yeah, I, I can imagine. I don't mind replacing that kind of stuff. It's pretty easy, but I could totally understand because, you know, you got to get in there and do the wires. I used to do it all the time, but now I'm like, ugh, I don't know. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you. My wife and I were uh, watching uh, Linus Tech Tips the other night, and it, it was a video of him, Linus, and his wife building a PC. And I looked over and said, would you ever want to do that? I don't know. I mean, maybe. I'm like, I don't think I ever want to do that. I think I'm done doing that. I think I'm done. I don't think I want to do that anymore. Interesting. If you buy a good enough workstation, it's going to last you several years. It's like, just spend the money now, right? That's right. So uh, this was an episode out of time, so we were not live this week. But uh, I think things are going to back, be back to normal. So uh, you can always check the calendar over jupiterbroadcasting.com slash calendar for live events in live time. Otherwise, we just nominally do it on Mondays at 5 p.m. Pacific. I think that would be 8 p.m. Eastern. Is there anything you want to mention, Mr. Dominic, before we skedats? Uh, no, just follow at Dimanuku on Twitter, and I'm releasing some leaky stuff for the Mad Botter. So. Mm, Mad Botter leaks. Uh, also, thank you to our Coder QA members. Our QA team keeps the show going, and they get a limited ad feed as a thank you, as well as our Coderly report. You can become a member at CoderQA.co. Also, thank you to Cloud Guru for sponsoring. You can find them on social media. They're just slash a cloud guru just about everywhere. I'm on the Twitters at Chris Lass. The network is at Jupiter Signal, where you can follow and get news announcements and stuff like that about what we're doing in live streams. The show itself, if you want just release information for this show, is at Coder Radio Show. And links to the stuff we talked about today and some of those, uh, some of the deep dives I did for VS Code and WSL development, like that kind of thing is in our show notes, either in your podcast player or at coder.show slash 415. Over there, you're going to find our contact form. We'd love to get your feedback. That's a big part of our show. Ask us a question or seek advice or correct us on something or tell us about a keyboard you've got recently. We love it all at coder.show slash contact. You'll find our RSS feed there as well. Thanks so much for joining us on this week's episode of the Coder Radio Program. Consider joining us live next time, and we'll see you right back here next week. <laughs>